All right, y'all, uh, you were given study guides when you came in. You can grab those if they help you through the sermon. This is part four of seven in this leadership series called A Time to Build. I'm hoping as this series progresses, we take it a little more from the theoretical realm to the practical one, and I want to give you practical tools on how to lead better. I think you're a leader because leadership is influence with people, and you have that. So whether or not you're leading well, I don't know, but you're a leader. You're leading someone, and I want to I try to give you some tools to lead better. And so what I want to talk about today is the role of inspiration in your leadership. So um, I read leadership journals uh, like um, habitually. I, go always, I, don't, I don't pay for them. I go to Barnes & Noble and read them for free and put them back. But I read them <laughs> nonetheless. And I, I'm always Harvard, Harvard Business Review and the Inc. Mag, all, these, all these leadership magazines, secular leadership magazines. And it's interesting to me how much they talk about inspiration. In 2019, the age of reason, they understand that inspiration is sort of the secret sauce that separates good leadership from great leadership, good companies from Great ones. So you can be a good leader if you're organized and if you're, um, you know, committed and you're resilient and all these things. But you can be a great leader if you're all those things plus inspired, right? And it's interesting to me that these secular magazines call upon inspiration as the secret sauce because inspiration is by its own nature metaphysical. It is a spiritual term. The word inspire literally means to put a spirit in a person. And so if you are inspired, it means you are possessed with a spirit. Now, which spirit? I don't know. It's up to you, but that's what inspire means. And still, I, I understand why secular leadership magazines are drawn to the concept because it's true. Leadership is this, in, I mean, um, um, inspiration is this invisible force that rejects inertia and disrupts the, disrupts the direction you've been on and, and awakens you to outperform your skill set and to overachieve based on your past performance. Inspiration is the one thing that can break up that old adage that says the best predictor of your future performance is your past performance. Listen, if you spent 30 years of your life uninspired and then you get inspired, the next 30 years of your life can look entirely different. Inspiration is, is like this secret, silent, invisible force that changes the trajectory of your future, but, but what is it when you are inspired to lead and live beyond your capacity, beyond your skill set? What is it about inspiration that allows a high school dropout to outperform Ivy League educated people? What is it about inspiration that changes the future? All right, well, hang on to that for a second because I think we need to talk about one other thing before we dig into that, and I just assume that you're with me. My hunch is that most of us are a little too cynical to trust inspiration. So um, what I mean by that is you have gotten your hopes up one time too many. 
when some leader or some politician or some preacher or maybe a parent, family member, business leader got you amped up and excited about some new idea, some new vision, you got your hopes up, and then once they got what they wanted, they usually want to get elected or get popular or get likes or get power, whatever it is that they wanted, once the moment has passed and the opportunity is behind them, it's like the dream they cast for you no longer existed. The promises that they made no longer matter. How many times have you gotten your heart broken by someone pitching inspiration that let you down? Inspiration that was false and fake. Naturally, if you've been let down by someone with false promises false inspiration, you're going to be slow to trust it again, of course. But I would caution you against becoming jaded. I would caution you against becoming cynical because instead of just throwing inspiration out the window, I think we have to ask the question, what's the difference between fake inspiration and real inspiration? And the differences are pretty clear. Real inspiration is all about a clear and concise vision and follow through. So real inspiration inspires action and not just talk. So fake inspiration is gonna be about feelings, it's gonna be about big dreams, empty promises, just kinda getting you amped up and no action. And you know real inspiration when you see it because there's always action, there's a plan to follow through, there's a will to keep going, even in the midst of adversity. And so, um, if you're one of those people, like me, who's just inherently skeptical, you don't get your hopes up anymore about things being any different than they've always been because you've just decided that the world is the way it is, you are the way you are, leaders are who they are, and you're never going to trust one again, I encourage you to open your heart to the possibility of real inspiration and understand that there is a difference. All right, so uh, we've been looking at the story of Nehemiah. Y'all know if you've been around, we've been looking at this Old Testament character in 444 BC. He went to Jerusalem with the vision of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. Um, there's really cool stuff out there, by the way. If, you've, if you're an archeological or historical geek, you can go online and find some of the dig sites that they've discovered around old Jerusalem, um, and they really have found the, the ruins Nehemiah is speaking of. They've found everything down to like a layer of ash that Nehemiah talks about, Babylon having burned the walls, and all the leaders Nehemiah mentions and everything, it all lines up. Well, one of the things that archaeology has taught us is that prior to Nehemiah coming to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem, there were others who tried before him, but they were charlatans. They, they weren't real leaders. They weren't truly inspired. I mean, the, they had a big vision. They wanted to be the man, but the minute they had some adversity, they, they jumped ship. And so there were all kinds of efforts to lead the, to lead the rebuilding, and um, it just kept falling apart. But Nehemiah changed the game, and the reason that he did is he came with a very clear and concise vision, and he came with the will to follow through on that vision. So let's look now at Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 17 to 20. Um, you can open your Bibles if you brought them, or read along with me on the screen, or in your study guides. Some of this is going to overlap with last week's scripture. I haven't lost my mind. I, I, this is a different sermon, I promise. But it's going to overlap scriptures from last week, just because I want us to be sure we're, we're getting this. 
What I want you to pay attention to are the clues about pointing to, to Nehemiah's leadership um, instincts, okay? Because you're going to see a couple things here in Nehemiah's leadership that are very important. So Nehemiah says, come let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began the good work. But when Senbalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you re rebelling against the king? And I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. All right, so I know that this, if you're not familiar with the Bible, can feel a little foreign, but what I want you to see is a very practical advice that we can glean from Nehemiah's leadership. The first thing that he does is he casts a very clear and concise vision. Now, in this passage, he also calls upon the name of God. Very important when you're leading people that they know that you are in submission to a higher authority so that it's not all you, you don't have all the answers, you're not the wizard behind the curtain, right? Like you're vulnerable before your leader, very important in leadership. We'll talk about that in the coming weeks. And then third, what you see is him standing up in the face of adversity with courage. His opponents rise up against him. He doesn't bat an eye. And we're going to talk about that in the coming weeks as well, the importance of facing um, opposition with courage. But the most important thing today is this idea of a clear and concise vision. What do I mean with this? Clear and concise visions are not all-encompassing. So when Nehemiah says, let us rebuild the wall, he could have said, let's rebuild the whole city. It was all in ruins. It was a mess. Or he could have gotten like historical and spiritual. Let us rebuild the Abrahamic tradition of our forefathers. Let us rebuild the Mosaic law and practice of the Torah. Let us rebuild our reputation as the kingdom of Israel. He could have said all those things and sounded really cool. But nary a brick would have been laid. Because it would have been too much for the people he's leading to wrap their heads around. All those things needed rebuilding. The rest of the city, Abrahamic tradition, Mosaic faith, kingdom of Israel, it all needed restoration. But Nehemiah honed in on the one thing that these people could be led to do. And he said, let's rebuild the wall. And they looked at him, they looked at themselves, they looked at the wall, and they said, we can do that. And Nehemiah led them. All of chapter 3 is Nehemiah divvying up the people at the different points along the wall, around the city, and they all started to rebuild. This is such an important and oft-overlooked quality of an inspired leader. Listen, as I said before, you're a leader because you have influence with people. You may not be on par with Nehemiah. I'm not on par with Nehemiah. But God has placed you in a position of leadership to influence someone. And the question I want you to ask yourself again this week is, how are you leading them? I know your heart breaks for them when they struggle, 
when it seems like they're drifting or when they feel lost, like I know your heart breaks for them, but how are you then leading them? Uh, the temptation for many of us, when, especially when we're going through some stuff and when we're not inspired by God, when, we're, when we have not opened our hearts to the spirit of God, we don't lead them with the spirit of God and we lead with our own stuff. And so I am sometimes prone when I'm tired, when I'm sick, when I'm burned out, whatever, I lead with my stuff, with my pride, with my insecurity. I lead with my resentment. I lead with all that stuff. And it ends up, um, we end up in a situation where I'm piling on everything that's wrong that needs to be fixed. Do this, do this, do this. That's wrong. That's not okay. You need to fix this. And the people in my sphere of influence are worn out by everything that's wrong about them or about their life. That's not the way God called us and created us to lead. I was talking recently with a guy who uh, is married, and this is going to sound a little bit like one of those stories preachers sometimes tell to tell women to be nicer to their husbands, and that's not really what I'm doing here because I've also heard the same story from wives about husbands. All right, y'all with me? Y'all going to chill about the whole gender thing? Okay, all right, so, okay, so... Um, this guy is coming to me and, and he's not going to leave her or anything. He still loves his wife. They're not in a crisis or anything, but he just feels beaten down emotionally. And they have been going after each other like cats and dogs for too long, right? And I'm not sure he's leading her well either, but she's definitely not leading him well. And you all understand my view of marriage is that the two lead one another in different ways. We influence each other by the grace of God, by the power of his spirit. So he described to me what's happening in about 45 seconds, I understood, because uh, it's, easy to, it's easy to see when you see it. And he said, I, I, I've been working my tail off, and I'm making more money than we ever imagined making. We came from nothing, and now it seems like we have everything, and I feel like we should be content or proud or something, but she's so unhappy that we don't have more. And she's always reminding me that I'm not making enough or working hard enough or bringing home enough. And it just makes me feel terrible. And, and he said, to make more, I've got to spend more time at the office. And so whenever I try to spend more time at the office to make more, to bring more home, to make her happy, she then complains about me not being home enough. I don't spend enough time with her. I don't spend enough time with the kids. And so I try to do both, spend more time at the office and somehow spend more time at home. And when I try to be all things to all people, both places at once, I get so tired that after the kids are in bed and we sit on the couch to watch a movie, I fall asleep in every movie we watch. And she gets mad at me about that. You won't even stay awake to watch a movie with me. You don't care. You don't love me. And it makes him feel even worse. And because he feels so bad and so disconnected from his wife, he's less romantic than he used to be. He plans fewer dates than he used to plan. And then she blames him for not loving her anymore, for not being romantic, for not making a way for them to be together as man and woman, you know. And, and it's just worn him out. And I guess if I could say something to this woman who is a She's actually, I'm, make, I'm making her sound awful. She's a really good woman. Like, she's a great Jesus-loving woman. But if I could have a conversation with her, I, I might say, what, what, are you, what are you doing? What's your vision for your husband? Do you really expect to be married to a man 
who works longer hours to make more money and manages to spend more time with the kids and more time with you and still manages to stay up through the end of crazy rich Asians? Do you really expect him to be all those things and be more romantic? Listen, if you're keeping score at home, this guy has internalized he's a bad provider, he's a bad father, he's a bad husband, he's all this shame, it's just layer upon layer, and if I could talk to this woman, I would ask her, what is your vision? Do you really want that for him, or is what you really want is to be married to a man who loves Jesus with all his heart? And if you were married to a man who loved Jesus with all his heart, and you love Jesus with all of yours, wouldn't all the other stuff fall into place where it should, of course? If you made time and helped him make time to get out the door on that Thursday morning or that Tuesday night, whenever, to go be with a men's Bible study where he could be supported and lifted up and prayed for and held accountable by a bunch of Christian men who were going to love him unconditionally but hold his feet to the fire when necessary, isn't that what you really want for him? Why is that not a part of this conversation? If I could tell her one thing, that might be what I would tell her, but I'm frankly afraid to have that conversation with her, so I'm going to send Gio to do that. Does that sound like a good plan? <laughs> All right, Geo's more persuasive anyway. So I, I think it's important that we analyze who we are leading and how we are leading them to follow Jesus above all else because it's so easy just to tell someone we love everything we wish they would change. And when you make a habit of telling each other everything you think they need to change, not a brick will be laid. Nothing will change. Because they'll be overwhelmed with shame to the point of inaction. Inspirational leadership casts a clear vision. Pick one thing. Choose your wall. Choose it wisely. And then help the one you love, the one you're leading, help them build that wall. Right? One thing we're doing throughout this series, in addition to looking at Nehemiah, obviously is looking at Jesus. And even if you don't believe Jesus was the Son of God and you think he was just a religious teacher, it's hard to deny that he was the most um, not only influential but inspirational leader to ever walk the earth, given where he came from and the power that he should have had and the power that he ended up with and the influence that he ended up having. It doesn't really add up. He was from the middle of nowhere. He was just a, a Jewish uh, rabbi. And and yet we're quoting him today, 2,000 years later across the world. It's a, it's a pretty amazing thing, the impact and influence that this man, Jesus, had. Tonight at Foundations class, if you've got a middle schooler or a high schooler, get them here. 5.30, I'm teaching a class about the humanity of Jesus and how he, as a man, influenced others. I wanted to read a passage for you. You can read along on your study guides or on the screen. This is actually a, a couple of passages um, that really depict Jesus's inspirational leadership. And I, I'm, I'm going to challenge you to pick up on some of the same themes that we saw in Nehemiah's leadership as well. And just listen close to what we see from um, Jesus's leadership in Luke chapter, or Matthew chapter 4 and then also Matthew chapter 9. We ready? All right. As Jesus... This is early in his ministry. He's calling his disciples. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. 
At once, their li- I'm sorry, at once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. That's actually a hilarious image, if you think about it. Uh, poor dad. Uh, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed Jesus. And as he went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. This is in Matthew 9. Matthew, sitting at a tax collector's booth, follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So, uh, I'll read the last. The Pharisees uh, saw this. What happened in this part of the passage is they call him out for hanging out with unsavory people. And Jesus said, the unsavory ones are the ones I want the most. All right. What was it about Jesus' leadership with people that they found so compelling that they left their lives behind to follow him? Have you ever loved a fisherman? Like somebody who loves to fish? Do you know how hard it is to get them out of their boat? I'm serious. That's like one of the hardest things to do in the world. And Jesus comes across these guys who are fishing with their brothers and their dad, and they're fishing for a living, and then Jesus is like, hey, come on, let's go. And they're like, cool, bye, dad. And then they just leave. (laughs) They leave the boats. And Jesus speaks to them. Listen, this is very important little. Some of y'all are intuitive leaders. You'll get this. Jesus speaks to them like fishermen talk. He says, hey, let's go fish for people. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And and they resonate with him. And that's the first thing I want to talk about when we look at the inspirational leadership of Jesus. Things that we can glean. I think there is about four things I want to talk about that we can glean from Jesus. The first one is his authenticity. And we're talking about his humanity tonight at Foundations class. It's very important to know that Jesus was God and he was, you know, um, the Messiah and, and he's eternal. But he was also a man talking to men and women and kids and inviting them to follow him. And he was such an authentic man. He led from the inside out. It's tempting for us to believe, of course, people followed Jesus. He was healing people. He was making the blind see. He was bringing dudes back from the dead. I would follow him too. That's not what was happening in that passage. There was no show. There was no snake oil salesman stuff. There was no circus. It was just Jesus, the guy, saying to other guys, come on, let's go. And they went. It's because Jesus was so real and so authentic that they found him to be irresistible. Never underestimate the power of authenticity. Whoever it is you're leading, a child, a spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, maybe you're a leader here at the church or coworkers or the business that you have, you lead your, your employees, whoever it is you're leading, don't fall for the trap of believing you in order to lead them well, have to have the answers. And even if you don't have the answers, you have to pretend like you do. If they ask you a question you know the answer to, say, I don't know. Let's go find out. Don't pretend like you've got it all figured out. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be real. Be vulnerable. Show them your scars and let them show you theirs. Like it's, it's relational, y'all. It's not top down. It's not one way. It's person to person and Jesus related to people that way and it was inspiring to the point of being irresistible. 
authenticity. The second thing I want to talk about is the power of storytelling. Um, this isn't necessarily seen in the passages we just read, but it's clear Jesus was a prolific storyteller. He told at least 40 parables that demonstrated the way God loves the world, or the way the kingdom of God works, and probably told a lot more than that. These are just the ones that the gospel writers recorded. Why does this matter to us today? It feels a little wishy-washy. Should we really lead with storytelling? Isn't that just for kids? No, not exactly, because the alternative to leading people to Jesus with stories and testimony is to lead them to Jesus with doctrine and arguments. Do you know how many people in all of history have been led into the kingdom of God with an argument? Zero. Absolutely zero. Even if you prove your point beyond uh, any doubt, even if they know you're right and they're wrong, they'll hate you for it anyway and they'll walk away because you're not someone they want to follow, no matter where you're leading them. No one ever gets argued into the kingdom of heaven. They get loved there. And they know that they're loved by the stories we tell. So don't pile on rules and dogma and doctrine. Tell them the story of how Jesus saved you, how Jesus loves you, how he changed your life, how he saved your marriage, or whatever your story is. Tell that If you don't have a good story of your own, tell them somebody else's story. But have stories at the ready. Don't tell them somebody else's story like it's yours. Tell them somebody else's story like it's theirs. But tell them stories. Because stories are persuasive. Jesus knew it, and so should we. Way more than doctrine and rules, stories inspire people to follow us. Third, what we learn from Jesus with the way that he inspired people is how he served. I will never really wrap my head around the idea that the God of creation, the eternal supreme being who's responsible for everything we see and feel and do and everything, when he became a man, he became a slave. When he became a man, he became a servant and he got on his knees and he washed the grimy feet of his no good disciples. When he became a man, he took the place of a subservient woman and he served the meal to his brothers that we celebrate at communion every week. He took the subservient role. He said, I'm God. Uh, yeah, I'm God, but I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. Because when you lay your life down for those you're leading, it compels them to follow you more because they understand you're not leading them for you. You're leading them for them because you love them so much you want them to know this love you found and nothing matters more and you'll serve them selflessly until they found it. There is nothing more compelling than a leader who gets on his or her knees like a servant on behalf of those they're leading. And finally, what we see with Jesus is compassion. And we saw it in the passage um, when Jesus sticks up for Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors were universally hated because they collected the Jewish people's money and then they sent it off to Rome. Matthew worked for the Roman government. Imagine if somebody who worked for the IRS took all your money and then they sent it to China. I know it's unthinkable that that would ever happen. But just imagine if that were the case. 
that how much you would despise them. Listen, Matthew's mama didn't even love him. Like that's how much tax collectors were despised. And Jesus is calling these guys closer to him because those are the ones he wants the most. He says, I didn't come for the righteous, but the unrighteous. And what he really meant with that, it was really a dig at the Pharisees because they weren't necessarily righteous. Many of them were self-righteous. When he says, I didn't come for the well, I came for the sick, they weren't necessarily well, they were just covering it up, right? He said, I came for the ones who were sick. He meant, I came for the ones who acknowledge their sickness, who acknowledge their need. Matthew acknowledged that need, and he remained close to Jesus from that point on. Jesus had compassion on those he saw around him who were leaderless. One time that he got really upset, and he didn't get really upset that often, but sometimes he really got moved to the point of like tears or something, and it's later in Matthew chapter 9 when he saw people like Matthew who were scattered, said they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, and he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Call upon the Lord of the harvest to send more workers, more leaders to go and find these sheep without shepherd and to shepherd them. It broke his heart when people were helpless for lack of good, inspired leadership. Listen, the people you feel compelled to lead, the people in your sphere of influence you're most worried about, many of them feel helpless about the world they're living in. For lack of inspirational leadership, calling them higher and to live different, they feel helpless. They watch the news, they feel helpless. They go on social media and feel helpless. And that helplessness leads to hopelessness because they're scattered like sheep without a shepherd. So let your heart break like Jesus' heart broke for you when you were lost like sheep without a shepherd. The Bible says we love, and it's not because we're good. It's not because we're so faithful and righteous. We love because he first loved us. And so whatever um, feeling or compulsion you have to lead those in your life, whether it's your child who you worry about or your spouse who you're worried about or whether it's somebody in this room right now or somebody that you work with, listen, lead them with compassion in your heart, listening to their stories, hearing their grief, empathetically understanding the journey that they've walked because you meet them where they are because praise the Lord, he met you where you were. This is what it means to lead well, to lead inspired. As you think about the way you're leading the people in your sphere of influence, ask yourself two questions. What Spirit, do you have in you? With what spirit are you leading? And ask yourself, what spirit are you inviting into the ones you're leading? Is it a spirit of fear? Is it a spirit of shame? Is it a spirit of Guilt and never enough. Are you piling on? You can pile on or you can lead well, but you can't do both. 
You can overwhelm the ones you're leading with shame, or you can inspire them, but you can't do both. And I believe that real transformation is possible even when you think it's hopeless and the people in your sphere of influence are helpless. They are not. Open your heart to the Spirit of God and let Him empower you to put the Spirit of God in them. There is hope. There was hope for Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day and there's hope for Houston, Texas today. And so lead. Be inspired. And inspire those you're leading the Spirit of God, and nothing less. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for this holy, difficult calling. Uh, I pray for courage. And I pray that your Spirit that has been poured out in this room and in this community will be poured out in me and poured out in each person here not only for our sake, but for the sake of those in our spheres of influence, that we would have something to give them when we lead them, that we would have your spirit to put in them. God, I pray that they would be open to that spirit that inspires in such a different way than the stuff that we see in this world that leaves us helpless and hopeless. God, help us to live and to lead with that sense of urgency, the urgency you felt, Jesus, when you came and took the cross on our behalf. We believe that much is at stake, and so help us not to take this grace we've encountered lightly, but to embrace it and receive it and share it with the world around us every day you give us on this earth. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.